What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, of course, Rob Santos, and I am joined, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we are covering another exciting episode on Shadow of the Torturer. This is part four, as we are delineating it. Today we are covering chapters 14 through 18. And I have had a complete, pardon me, Drew, but you're going to have to censor this so early in the episode, but a complete mind f- of an experience <laughs> reading this portion of this book. I'm excited to get right down to it. Drew, would you kindly give us a recap so I can ask you about the definition of about 30 plus words? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this week, we move into the second act of The Shadow of the Torturer. Severian returns to Master Palemon, who gives him one final gift the gorgeous Executioner's Blade, Terminus Est. Severian then quickly leaves the Citadel through the Necropolis and the Back Gate, heading out into the city of Nessus. As night falls, Severian finds himself briefly arrested because he's causing a commotion. He proves that he is indeed a torturer, and the guard tells him to find something to cover his cloak. Severian moves on, and, after getting lost, stumbles into a random inn. He is forced into bed with a strange giant man named Baldanders, and has even stranger dreams. In the morning, Severian is awoken by another new player in the story, Dr. Talos, the companion of Baldanders. The three of them head off to get breakfast, where Dr. Talos explains that he and Baldanders are touring around, raising money to rebuild their house. He recruits Severian and their waitress to be actors in a play. With Dr. Talos, Baldanders, and the waitress off preparing for the play that night, Severian decides to buy something to cover his cloak. He runs into an attractive young lady who helps run a rag shop with her brother. While Severian is in there, the brother attempts to buy Terminus Est several times, and then a high-class soldier walks in and challenges Severian to a duel to the death. The sister, Agia, accompanies Severian as he heads out into Nessus to prepare for the duel. They hire a carriage to drive them to the Botanic Gardens, where Severian must acquire an Avern for the duel. On the way, Agia challenges another carriage to a race, but their carriage goes out of control and they crash into a, crash inside a building and destroy a giant altar. While Severian and Agia are collecting themselves, a fire starts and a group of Pelerines, whose cathedral they crashed in, approach. They first accuse Severian of stealing from them, but decide he did not. Then, they strip-search Agia, but also find nothing. Terminus Est is then returned to Severian, and they escape from the citadel, or the cathedral. Yeah. So this week so, was crazy. This week, it was crazy, and it was frustrating, and it was fun, but it was mostly frustrating for me. <laughs> as uh, obviously indicated by my dry comment at the beginning, I learned more new words in this particular read-through than I have learned, I think, in the past 50 episodes of Inking Out Loud combined. Um, I'm also going to preface this with a warning for the audience who didn't notice, who may or may not have noticed my voice crack just 30 seconds ago there. I was, I, I worked today during the one of the record-setting hottest days we've ever had up here, and I was welding for 11 hours. I, I think I'm suffering from some sort of mild heat exhaustion, so I'm going to be a wreck today. I don't have notes prepared. I mean, I, sh- I do have notes prepared. They're just not organized, kind of like last week. So I'm going to be going mostly off the cuff here. But it's a good thing... Uh, because my notes, as I'm looking at them, are about 95% new words and their definitions. So I guess that could lead us to our first style point, if you would. Um, (laughs) Because every episode so far in the first three episodes covering Shadow of the Torturer, 
I've learned five or six, maybe seven or eight new words today. I'm thinking I'm I'm not joking. I think it's about twenty to twenty five at least. So, yeah, <laughs> the uh, the language, languaged, the verbosity is that a word? I don't yeah, know. Sure. Let's sure. let's discuss it. The uh, articulation yeah, let's, of severity. Yeah. Let's start uh, into our our language uh, segment. Oh, we don't have uh, but, to start into language specifically. I just want to talk about like the new words. But if you want to actually go straight into language, we can do that as well. I, I do. Uh, because it's not just the new words, but the names. Um, we meet several new important people in this segment of the story. And so we, we got to yeah. talk about their names. And okay. uh, first off, the, the first new person we meet is Baldanders. Yes. Uh Baldander's so, a giant. Yeah, he is a giant. Uh, Baldander's is a... Uh, Are you about to ruin something for me? Do I not know this race yet? N- no. So so Baldander's oh. in, in real world literature uh, comes from a... Uh, comes from a 1600s book by Johann Hans Jakob Christoffel von Grimmelshausen uh, by way of Borges' Book of Imaginary Beings. So, according to Borges, the name means soon another or at any moment something else, and the character ultimately derives from Proteus, the old man of the sea. So, like, going back to, uh, like, Holy mythological... Crap. You know, this idea of, like, a, a shapeshifter or uh, somebody who's... Uh, whose existence is mutable. We are five minutes into the episode proper and I have already learned something new. I had no idea that Baldander's actually... You're right. We already discussed this several times. Every name deserves yeah. research. Yes. Oh my god. Um, so that is the first of the new people that we meet. The first of the new characters. Yes. Uh, the second is Dr. Talos. It's, and I yes, I was excited. I was a little one. surprised that you didn't immediately jump on this because if I remember correctly, one of your best friends has the last name Talos. That is that the several actually because they're a whole yeah. family of brothers whom I'm best friends with. All of them are Talos. <laughs> they they pronounce it Talos. Talos. Okay. Um, yeah, in Greek mythology, Talos was a giant automaton made of bronze to protect Europa and Crete from pirates and invaders. Giant yep. automaton. So. Yep. Yeah, I saw that and I, I giggled with glee and I immediately screenshot it and I texted it to my best friend James, who's currently stationed in Cold Lake, Alberta. And I was like, hat, we have a Dr. Talos, dude. He, because, I mean, Talos was such a, it was a name that nobody else in any of our schools had ever had. Like, it was, it was really a, a point of awesomeness when you're 11, 12 years old and that kind of thing matters in your life. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I saw Dr. Talos and I, I immediately had to text my friend James and I was like, yo, dude, we're covering this, this guy, here's another Talos. It's awesome. So yeah. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Point to make. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, that's a one, one very fun, uh, mythological connection. I'm really heartwarmed uh, and that then, you remembered that. You saw Talos and you're like, oh yeah, Rob has a friend named Talos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Continue. Uh, James, is that... James he, Ruben he was, Dave. He was like, yeah, okay. Was James the one who played Halo with you a lot? Yeah, well, both James okay. and Ruben did, but James did a lot more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, anyway, so the the <laughs> next, yeah, yeah, um, the next <laughs> of the important characters we're introduced to here is Agia. And Agia is another name for St. Ostrogildus, who was the mother of St. Lupe of Sens. Agia, the wife of St. Hydolphus of Hainault, who died in 714 AD, is especially venerated in Belgium. And then Agilus is named after St. Agilus, uh, who died in 650 AD. He was a Frankish nobleman and a monk. Oh, this is a so, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we have two new people named after saints here. I, I, Agia I and Agilus. With Agia, the first thing that came to mind as a four-letter A-G word was the Portuguese word for water, which is agua, A-G-U-A. Oh. That's hmm. what came to, to, to me there, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so, and then, and then, of course, the other two are named for mythological figures. Uh, but yeah, and then, and then we can go on into the, the really crazy words here. <laughs> because you are not kidding that there are a lot of uh, um, archaic and uh, obscure words yes. in this segment, the, especially the corner- in the, yeah, the chapters around the rag shop where we get some of these descriptions of clothing uh, but they're kinds of clothing words that are not yeah. normally used. <laughs> yes. The the cornucopia of, or yeah, the exhibition of aggressive articulacy that was this <laughs> yeah. entire scene. Oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. All right. Let's just start with our words. Um, yeah. This one actually was, was, was slightly earlier than that, though. This was a uh, an L. I learned what an L was in terms of oh, yeah, unit the... of measurement of length. I had mm-hmm. never heard of that. And I, of course, for all my words today, I actually looked at, looked up definitions. Uh, that was the bit of homework that I actually did do and organized. This is a Northwestern European unit of measurement, originally understood as a cubit, which is the combined length of the forearm and extended hand. So I had been and using this. Yeah, so it's interesting because this is described as, uh, like, the blade of terminus est is described as an L in length. Right. And and we have a couple other points in the in this Wait a second, wait a second. Chapters. That's so short, though, compared to how it's yeah. described, isn't so it? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. I'm looking is at my arm right now. An L is about is about four feet long. That's not very long for like the blade of this sort as it is described. And this uh, is, I think, another one of those instances of uh, of Wolf using a word that it doesn't mean exactly in the in the use of this text. It doesn't mean okay. exactly what. It means in our, uh, in our. Is it an lexicon? Is it, would you call it an anachronism? No, not necessarily like a an fantasy anachronism. Sort of? it's, no, it's it's not that it like it it it's it, it, if you go back to that um, the appendix right the note on the translation where he says. Um, uh, like, I might easily have saved myself a great deal of labor by having recourse to invented terms. In no case have I done so. Thus, in many instances, I have been forced to replace yet undiscovered right. concepts by their closest 20th century equivalents. So he's mm. saying, like, he's using but, words that mean as close to what these future terms mean as possible. Which is interesting, because we are taking his word that he has invented no terms at this point. 
and you, of course you could you could verify this yourself as a reader with every individual yeah. word but i mean this is also coming from a guy who says i have a perfect memory and yet he goes to demonstrate time uh, and time again is, that this he's is unreliable as okay. hell a so, different different thing here different thing you are conflating oh, severian with gene wolf wolf uh, is the one who wrote the author's note saying oh I'm sorry using the 20th century note. words Okay, sorry. I had, yeah. I had somehow blanked out for that one and a half seconds when you said author's note. That's entirely my bad. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. got you, got you. So, uh, so I think that that is a... And there's also the uh, another possible interpretation for the meaning of L here, where mm-hmm. you know it's described as, like, it's based on um, a length of a body part, an arm, right? And... Um, to the tip of the finger, yeah. And Severian is taller than a person of our stature. Severian is remarked Seriously? upon multiple times. Yeah, like he he taller has you are? blood of the exultant class and exultants are described as being much taller than normal humans. So Severian could be taller. describing wow. like based on his arm length. You know, like I'm not, wow. I don't think Severian's like eight or nine feet tall or anything like that, but I think he's probably more like seven feet tall. Oh, damn, damn. Because yeah. you are quite the tall person. You are six foot four for anybody who yes. hasn't listened to often enough to, to know that instinctively. And and when I actually do finally meet you in person, it's going to be like, <laughs> dude, you are so f***ing tall. What the hell? So, so the exultants are that much taller on average. They are like uh, Dutch on yes. hormones? That's uh, insane. They're, yeah, exultants are indeed taller. Thecla is very tall. Um, yeah. yeah, I figured this was like a... Uh, uh, like an average of three to six inches on average. We're talking like a foot, foot and a half from the average. Holy crap. Yeah. That's so cool. in the uh, lexicon earthus, the um, dang, I'm, I'm, of course, ironically, I'm blanking on the word for it, but like the okay. uh, future Drew can under exultant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is listed as the class of highborn people. Exultants are ironically taller than the common folk in the Earth cycle. It doesn't say, yeah, okay. Dutch are taller than Koreans on average. It doesn't mean a foot and a half. Uh, there, oh. this, is, mean, this is this is beating a horse into the ground. This or running a horse into the ground. What am I saying? Uh, beating a dead horse. There we go. Um, uh, so there are there are future notes, and I'll just read this. Um, uh, Thecla, uh, adult Thecla is six foot eleven. Holy crap! Yeah. Okay. Nope. Yeah. Check animate. Wow. <laughs> nice. Uh, oh, we're still Severian. Okay, this Sorry, is interesting. Um, Severian at the time of this book is six foot one, and this puts him within the height range of an exultant bastard. Thecla at age thirteen say. or fourteen was as tall as Severian. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Severian still has like four years of growing if his hormonal growth is roughly the same rate as ours. So. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yes. And Master Ultan is about seven foot three. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> that, this is wow. Okay. Yeah. So, All right. So, anyway, uh, other, other words. Rob. <laughs> Hydrogyrum. Hydrogyrum? Oh, uh... Hydrogyrum? Uh, uh, Hydrogion, I believe. No, no, no. H-Y... 
D-R-A-R-G-Y-R-U-M. It's hydrogyrum or hydrogyrum. Oh, it's either a maybe this is or a there two different words that I'm thinking of here. Ah, there are two different words. So the one, oh, you're talking about, it's uh, it's mercury. Mercury. You're talking about the yes. metal that's in the... Quicksilver, that's in the spine yeah. of uh, Terminus S. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it flows and it changes the like that was the so center cool. of was weight. Like, uh, that was a nerdgasm for me right there. That was really yeah. cool. Sorry, the one that I was thinking of is Hypogeon, a Chthonian oh. name, perhaps an aspect of the Increate or even the that? name of the mysterious crit. Yeah, it's like uh, there's one point in chapter 18 where Agia um, uses it, and I don't remember. She says, well, hi, Hypogeon, help you. Oh, I thought um, that was an in-world god. That's probably why I didn't look it up. But then again, he doesn't. Yeah, pretty, pretty okay, much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's it's used in that sense. Um, but you're right. I we don't get a lot of... Um, yeah, we don't get a lot of context outside of that where you just know it's some sort of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, mm. Moira. May the Moira favor you, Severia. Oh. <clears throat> now this is a proper noun, I believe, is the terminology. This is this is a, this is a capitonym. This is a name. Yes. May the Moira favor you. Um. That was a new one to me. Uh, a Greek term for one's personal fate or destiny. Ooh. Luck as an instrument of the increate. But a the sacred capitonym, lottery. The the capitalization of the first letter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Paterissa. Paterissa? Okay. Let's let's find this one real quick here. I believe I mean, I, it's I Paterissa, but I am not 100% I've already looked them all pa- up. Paterissa. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm thinking of a different word again. Okay, so a this is... Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, this is a staff topped by a cross. Uh, this is a, yeah. a specific term for, like, a staff used by a bishop. It's from comes from Latin. It's like a ceremonial yeah. staff that a bishop would. Yeah, hold. yeah, yeah. This was actually my longest uh, definition entry. Uh, stylized staff that is a symbol of the governing office of the bishop or abbot, and is carried hmm. by high-ranking prelates of Roman Catholic, Eastern Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, and some uh, Anglican, Lutheran, and United Methodist and Pentecostal churches. So that was, hmm. that was yeah, that was a long one. Mm-hmm. Sitting here typing that one out on my Galaxy S twenty two plus when I'm trying to get back. And to I love that. Uh, kind of that mental image when Severian is talking about how he's walking through the city at night and he's using Terminus Est as like a walking staff. So he uses this word to <laughs> say that it looks like he's not carrying a sword, but he's carrying this cross-topped staff. Mm. And I, I like that yeah. kind of mental image of him in, in the dark cloak, kind of silhouetted against the, the street lamps with the, yeah. the tall Ooh. sword a that potential... he's using as a walking staff. Thumbnail for this episode, if we could. Uh, Ooh. Not intrude Ooh, I too like much that. On Dandy's time, because she could do this amazingly, but we want to keep it reasonably timed for her as well. Mm. Um, I yeah. I think we may have to ask her to do that one. That would That's be a really, really good. good. One, That's a good one. That's a great uh, image. Thalamagi or Thalamagos from the All Greek. Right. It's Nile River Palace Barge. That's what it is in our vernacular. 
Oh, yeah, a, a large, richly dec- decorated barge used for luxurious water travel, ceremonies, floating parties, and the like. A ship fitted with cabins. Mm. This next one is really dumb. Like, really dumb. I actually should have known this, or I should have... What I should say is I should have been able to figure it out through context. <laughs> um, externs. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very similar to an intern. Just provided by... part. It's like similar to internships provided by partnerships between educational institutions and employers. I looked, that was a moment where I looked that one up and I went, well, duh, duh. what's, ah, <laughs> uh, this next sentence pissed me off. Okay. Ooh, okay. This is not even the full sentence. This is the end of the sentence. Feigned to play flagellates and ophicleides, ophicleides, flagellates, flagellates, and ophicleides, ophiclades, ophiclides. Oh my God. I'm, I'm like reading myself out of this one right now. Ophiclides. Uh, I want to say that one is. It is so Ophiclides. a flagellate is a small oh, yeah, yeah. instrument with yeah. a with, mouthpiece yes. at one end, similar to a recorder. Yep. And the uh, ophiclide is a keyed brass instrument. And I saw pictures of it. It looked similar to a mutated saxophone. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Interesting. Lockage. <laughs> Or Lokaj. Oh, the officer? Yeah. Yes, an officer who commanded a company in ancient Greece. Yep. Optimate. You're going to get a lot of of these, like, ancient ancient world military positions. (laughs) Yo. I'm down. I'm I'm seriously down for it. Optimate. Member of the patrician ruling class in Republican ancient Rome. An aristocrat or a noble. I had never Uh, heard the word optimate. And so in the context of the book of the new sun, the like optimates exultant. are kind of, they're, they're like upper middle class, sort of they're below armagers and exultants, but they're above the, uh, like the commoners are exultants. The only ones that have clear genetic differences or our, uh, armagers. probably do they, do they have like also noticeable differences on average? No, uh, it's exultants probably just out. the exultants. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, probably. What? Okay. All right. Um, I'm assuming <laughs> we'll you're either. Yeah, you're probably trying to raffle me on that. Okay. All right. Um, let's see here. Carrick. I had never heard the word Carrick or Carrick. Oh, really? C A R R A C K. Yeah, that yeah, one surprised yeah. me because I was like, I looked at the definition, which is three or four mastered oceanic sailing ship, and I went, I should have known that. How yeah. did I not know that? I've played enough Age of Mythology, Age of Empires. I've played enough video games. I should know what a Karak is. Uh, so this is another one that I can thank the Star Wars Expanded Universe for because there are Karak-class Imperial cruisers. Oh, and that's so awesome. I, I knew that word from a young age. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Lambrequin or Lambrequin. I want to say the second one. Lambrequin? Yes. And I got two different definitions on this one, and I didn't want to go back. I didn't feel like going back and actually reading the context, so I'm just going to read both definitions. It's either a short piece of decorative drapery hung over the top of a door or window or draped from a shelf or mantelpiece, or it is a type of arch with an ornate profile of lobes and points. Uh, it's a rumel. It's a, a strangling scarf. On the, on a, oh, oh. Oh, we had that in the Black Company. Oh, my God. Really? Yep. Oh. 
Somehow I didn't get either and, of those. And it's actually really funny uh, because the description that this, where this word is used, you know, where they find like a dead man outside the breakfast shop. And the quote is, a dead man, he had, I think, been suffocated with a lambrequin, there oh, being okay, those yeah, yeah. who practice that art. And in the Lexicon Earthus uh, entry for this, it says, this passage suggests that a sort of thuggy cult exists in Nessus and is well known. And of course, the thuggy cult is the cult that inspired the uh, deceiver cult in the Black Company. You just blew my mind. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. Alright. <laughs> I really I really regret not having gone back to reread that scene again because I do I do remember the offhanded comment about the corpse and I was like, huh? And I stopped and I read it a second time and then I wrote down the, the you know, Lambrequin. I had uh I should have uh, gone back and read it a third time. Uh okay. Next one. Proshenium. Or Prosenium. Uh, or P-R-O-S-C-E-N-I-U-M. Okay. I mean, I have... P-R... Prosenium, the wall that separates a theatrical stage from the seating area, including the arch over the stage. Often highly mm. decorated. Basilica. Basilica? Yeah. You didn't know Basilica? I did not. I swear I did not know Basilica. It is an oblong building ending in a semicircular apse. And then I went, oh, come on. <laughs> I have to look this one up too. And I and then I realized, oh, wow. To look up the definition of words that Gene Wolfe is using, I'm also having to look up definitions of other words so that I can understand the definition of the original term. Um but yeah, basilicas, they're used in ancient Rome, especially for a court of justice and a place of public assembling. It's an oblong building ending in a semicircular apse. Uh, so interestingly, uh, basilica is a common term for a specific style of church, uh, like Roman Catholic, many cathedrals, many Roman Catholic cathedrals really? are basilicas. This was my first return on and, Google. And they tend to be built in the shape of a cross where you where you have like small wings coming off the side of the main, um, the main chamber of the church. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Martello's. I had never heard the word Martello's. We're getting into like the, the you big could figure now. that out pretty easily from the context yeah. though. Yeah. Any numerous small, any of numerous small circular forts that were erected for defense purposes along the Southeast coasts of England during the Napoleonic wars. Those were Martello's. Yeah. Lazaret. Like little outrigger forts. Mm. Uh, Lazaret. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lazaret. It's a small compartment below a deck in the after end, or I should say the aft end, I think somebody got that one wrong, uh, used for stores of a vessel. <coughs> oh, that's interesting. That's a different definition than I know. Uh, really? Yeah, as as I've heard Lazarus used, it's it's like uh, housing for sick people. Uh, oh. Often specifically lepers, and it comes from oh. the biblical figure Lazarus, uh, who is the one that I, Jesus that's resurrected. what stopped me and I looked at it, but it was Lazaret. 
and I, I looked it out. At least I wrote it down, and then the next day I looked it up, and it was a small compartment below the deck in the aft end of a vessel used for stores. Interesting. I wonder if there's an etymological correlation between the two. Okay. Uh, let me let me look it up in the lexicon here. Uh, Lazarus, a house for the reception of the diseased poor, especially lepers, a hospital or pest house. And there's also Lazaretto, earlier form of Lazaret. Note that the word usually refers to a quarantine house or location. Wow. I'm looking at it right now. Okay. Oh, you know what? Here here it is on my screen right now, on my, on my phone screen. Lazaret is what I searched up on Google. I don't know if you can read uh-huh. that. But right below it is a definition that I just read, which was a definition for Lazaret. So oh. I just didn't read closely enough that Google had changed the word on me and assumed it knew what I was looking up because that is the <laughs> kind of obscure language that Gene Wolfe is employing in this. That's insane. I love it. Google was like, no, nah, you mean Lazaretta. Lazaretto. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Lazaret. Anyway, speaking of Lazaret, uh, Minaret is how I want to pronounce this one because of my French uh-huh. roots. Uh, a tall, slender tower, typically part of a mosque with a balcony mm-hmm. from which a moisin calls Muslims to prayer. Yep. I had no idea. Minaret. It's cool. Yep. It's a good one. <laughs> we're, st- <laughs> we're still going through, everybody. Uh, Lansequinet. Lanskinet. Oh, Lanskinet. Oh, that sounds so much better when you put it that way, considering the definition, of course. It's of yeah, they, Germanic origin of a game. Yeah, they're mercenary cavalry. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Balmacon. Or Balmacans. This is not B-A-L-M-A-C-A-A-N-S. one that I know. B-A-L-M-A-C-A-A-N-S. We're in uh, the point where we are describing units of clothing, if that gives you a hint. A short, rough overcoat. Yep. Full overcoat with raglan sleeves originally made of rough woolen cloth. Surtout. It's a man's overcoat, similar to a frock coat. Okay, that is another one that Dol- I did not know. Dolman, or dolmans in the plural. It's a long Turkish robe open in front. Okay, nice. So we're into this, the rag shop descriptions now. We are definitely into the rag <laughs> shop right now. Padwasoy, or Padwasoy. Hmm. P-A-D-U-A-S-O-Y. I'm sure yes. there's a better pronunciation for it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um... Let's see. So a strong corded or gross grain silk fabric, much worn in the 18th century by both yep. sexes. Okay. This is interesting because uh, it seems like this is a French thing, considering the name uh, that I'm not even going to try to pronounce uh, <laughs> that oh, they have the in the French entry here. P-O-U-L-T-D-E-S-O-I-E. Poule de C. Cool. Thanks. But yeah, I was I was interested because the first thing that popped out at me with this word is the is Padua, which made me wonder if it was an Italian thing, but mm. apparently it's French. Yeah. Ah. Interesting. Do not go by my horrible uh, slaughter of the Quebecois pronunciation in French Canadian. <laughs> uh, Matelas or Matelas. M-A-T-E-L-A-S-S-E. Unsurprisingly, a silk or wool fabric woven so to as or so as to have a raised surface with a quilted appearance. Hmm. 
Again, French. Mm. Mm. Pavanine or Pavanine. Ah, yes. This, this one I think describing... is my favorite this week. Yeah, this is describing Agia's dress. It's yes. very rich. Mm. This one uh, is probably the one I'm most excited to use in my future writing because this just works. It's so flexible in its simplicity and its elegance. Of or like a peacock. Yep. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, because she's wearing this crazy rich dress uh, that... Uh, but but a crazy rich dress that is not in a state of good repair. Uh, like the first thing that Severian notices is that there's like a a rip in it right before below her waist, and he gets a a nice view in the early morning yep. sun, and it yes, like he does. Yep, sets him off. <laughs> yep, yep. I just counted what I have remaining, and I still have ten to go. I, I'm ah. so sorry, everybody. I need to apologize for the astute listener or the educated listener who didn't realize they were in for probably what's going to be 50 minutes of Rob learning new words today. Uh, <laughs> but let's truck on. All right. Monogamy? Uh, yeah. Like- I had no idea. Mon- monogamy, or sorry, monogamy was a word that I had obviously already known, but monogamy with a C-H. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that that was even on the table. Um, as a word, I mean. It's like single combat. Mm, I looked it up and it's being married to one person at a time. A lot like monogamy. N- no. I'm going to look it up now. So, did Google, did you autocorrect something for me again and I didn't notice? That's that's a very strange um Oh, it did. Look at this right here. Okay. Showing results instead of monogamy. You f***ing asshole, Google. Making me sound <laughs> like a dumbass on this episode of Inking Out Loud podcast, or at least somebody who doesn't read their definitions particularly closely. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for. So you said it was one on one combat? Yeah. It's That's like single cool. combat. Uh, okay. So. I mean, it works in their context, obviously, how it's being used, but I mean. Ha. Yeah. Um. And now I feel like an idiot. Because hold on. Seeing how it's been used in this book, why I didn't question it being married is baffling. Yeah, because it's it's being used to describe... Um, it's, it's in the context of the challenge. Yeah, in fact, I think it's in the yeah. same uh, sentence as uh, uh, monogamy. Manama, it's monomachy. Oh, M-O-N-O-M-A-C-H-Y. There we go. Sorry. There we go. I, I, like I somehow... It's, <laughs> yeah, it's like hard to even pronounce because you want to pronounce it like... I'm writing down these new words and I'm misspelling them in my phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I wrote... M- oh, sorry, I wrote M-O-N-O-C-H-A-M-Y. Thanks, thumbs. Okay. I'm, I'm actually surprised there is no entry for... Monomachy in the oh, lexicon Earth. Monomachy still is a um, still contains all the same letters. That's interesting. That might have been like a half word dyslexia moment for me. Hmm. Oriflame. Or as I want to pronounce it in French, Oriflame. <laughs> yeah, or, Oriflame is how I no, pronounced I, it. 
uh, appointed blood red banner flown from a gilded lance was the battle standard of the king of france in the middle ages originated as a sacred banner of the abbey of street or sorry street of saint denis or in french it would be denis mm-hmm. yep mm. nice thylacine okay this is a creature correct yes i don't remember what it is though it's an extinct carnivorous marsupial that was native to the Australian mainland. So in case okay. you as a reader, you know, and somehow Severian knows what a freaking silo, sorry, thylacine is. <laughs> See, this is a, a one of those uh, instances where Wolf is using a word to describe oh, something that is right. not exactly that's, the same. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got you. This is the closest available English word. Yeah. Got you. Yep. I heard a particular word that made me go, ha! Huh. And that was um, in the story of Gabriel. Where, when do you? Four letters. W-E-N-D. Hmm. Which is to go in a specified direction, typically slowly or by an indirect route. Okay. Route. I don't think I knew that word. Yes. Where, when do you? <laughs> uh, uh, Nidorus or Nidorus. Nidorus? Uh, this is another one that I feel like you have a pretty good idea from the context. Oh, I got it from context right away. I'm like, that smells like <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But <laughs> sorry, specifically, sorry. it's uh, uh, burning fat. Yeah. Rankly odorous. Involves yeah. the smell of decay. Mensal. M-E-N-S-A-L, which is of, relating to, or done at the table. Um, interesting. So in the lexicon, mensal is listed as a place supplying a monthly rent to a religious order or official, particularly if the rent is given in the form of food. Google, don't f*** me again on this one. I'm looking it up. Mental definition. I mean, it tells me that the root is similar, at least, or or like these definitions are coming from the same root because both of them have to do with food. What the hell? I typed into Google mental definition, M-E-N-S-A-L definition. I got the same one that I just read to you of relating to or done at the table. But right, the first return on people also ask is what is Lazaret? In English. <laughs> uh, that tells you that m the majority of people who, s who Google this <laughs> are reading the book of the new sun. <laughs> I love this. I love this. How surprised are you to hear that? Not I at all. I guess not at all. There you go. <laughs> yeah. See? Word to the word. Ah, oh, uh, my goodness. Anyway, mental. Of relating to or done at the table in uh, Merriam-Webster. So, interesting that it has a different entry in the lexicon. Yeah. Hmm. Dromedaries or dromedaries. Oh, you know dromedaries. I had no idea what dromedaries. Listen, they're camels. Yeah. I had no idea what the hell those were. I didn't know. All right. Bet you didn't right. know this next one until you read it in this book. If you did, I'd be very impressed. Oh, this is going to be the hardest one to pronounce as well. Metaminodons. Uh, spell it. <laughs> M E T A. So meta, M-Y-N-O-D-O-N-S. Okay. A hornless rhinoceros. Yeah. Ancient pre-hippo, pre-rhinoceros, ancestor, 
Yes. <laughs> Apparently a common writing mount in Nessus. I bet you I nailed that one. I bet you it's pronounced exactly metaminodons. I, I I think you're right. Either metaminodon or metaminodon. Yeah. Metaminodon hackney. sounds better. I had no yeah. idea what a hackney was. Hackney? It's a horse. Yeah. Or a yeah. pony of a light breed with a high-stepping trot used in harness. There are a lot of different words used to describe riding creatures in these books. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to... Yeah, okay. This is my last one. Okay. Pelerine. Or pelerine. The pelerines. Yeah. The religious order. Yes. P-E-L-E-R-I-N-E-S. Well, it's a woman's cape of lace or silk with pointed yes. ends. So the... Um, the religious order in here is named after the With cloaks they wear. It. Got you. Yeah. That's awesome. So now that we are almost 41 minutes into this episode, we've pretty much <laughs> talked exclusively about minute words. Yeah. This was, this was an obnoxiously verbose <laughs> uh, section. It was fun, but oh boy, it was challenging. And I really hope I'm not going to spend another 40 minutes next episode having to go through my new words again. But, I feel like yeah. he kind of goes in waves where he'll he'll like dump a lot of them on you. And uh, and so this is one of the things I want to talk about with style and, I'm, and why I was okay with jumping right into the language is because I think one of the things that Wolf tends to do is overload you with huge words when he wants to distract you from clues in the text. And so you, you get your, you get your mind stuck on being like, wow, like look at how insane these words are. And you miss little details because of that. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of clues, a lot of mysteries introduced in these chapters. Uh, and I'm not going to explain all of them because, uh, I want you to get the experience of discovering them as you read on. But, <laughs> it's a good call. It's a good call. Uh, but there are, uh, I will just say, there are things that happened in close proximity to a lot of these crazy $10 words that play into an ongoing mystery in the story right now. Sticking on our style points, I noticed another moment where he made, he being Severian, not Gene Wolfe, but Severian in text made overt reference to the fact that this is also an in-world text uh -huh. when he went, now I must write something that still shames me. Yep. And then the proverbial fecal matter hit the oscillating atmospheric exchange device. <laughs> um, but still, that was something that made me stop and go, okay, this, this is what, our third time this has been confirmed in our, what, fourth part of this book so far as you and I are dividing it? So this is being, like, Severian is, or Gene Wolfe through Severian, is being very, very uh, blatant about this. Being very assertive about this. And it's making me question in and of itself because I don't know how much I trust Severian as a narrator. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's interesting, and I wanted to, to, to see what you would say about the fact that we're still getting these thrown at us. I mean, he, he makes reference to it a couple of times. There's one point yeah, yeah, where he, he talks about how he now. like he he stops writing for a little while. And, and then he's like, I could hear the guards changing outside yeah. the room in which I... That's a long yeah, now I begin again. Change. 
Uh, it has been a long time. Twice I have heard the guard changed outside my study door since I wrote the lines you read only a moment before. I am not yeah. certain it is right to record these scenes, which perhaps are important to me in so much detail. I might easily have condensed everything and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. He uses guard yeah. exchange as a, as a quantitative measurement of length of time, which was like, oh, yeah. and he's See, explaining. I it like time. it. Uh, I like this technique because it makes Severian feel more human to me. Where, and, and this, again, this is something you could interpret a couple of different ways. This could be Severian bearing himself to his readers, being vulnerable, saying, you know, like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm doing this right. It could also be Severian fronting that he's vulnerable in order to manipulate us as readers. <laughs> mm. But it, there, that that way lies madness because if you start disbelieving things that he says or disbelieving everything that he says, then simply because he said it, yeah, 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 then then ultimately you can't trust anything at all in the text, and and you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you'll drive yourself crazy. I see, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I, I recall us talking about this previously. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I wanted to get what I can out of you, understanding that you don't want to ruin it for me or uh -huh. anyone else who's reading it. This dream with the flying beast slash hag with a face and these black slash purple wastes you know, of land and these giant beings white as leprosy as they're called and this the brides citadel, of abaya the brides of abaya and this mm -hmm. citadel that's way bigger than the citadel we know so like this is these are the the most um the most excited that i get reading the uh gene wolf so far when we get these because this sounds like you know i want to say deep world building but just deep happenings deep mechanism, deep what's going on in this book or in these books going forward in this narrative. And it, this is why I'm invested in going forward with this. It's it, like the, the prose is interesting. I'm not quite as um, engaged by it. I'm, I'm getting uh, frustrated having to spend an hour and a half reading through three pages because I have to look up 25 different definitions i, I will say entire... you don't have to look up most of these words like a lot of it oh, you i was can doing get... it in the yeah yeah like you can get more or less the meaning of what he's going for based on the context mm. um but but yeah but then moments like this are what remind me i'm reading something that i want that i'm excited to read yeah this yeah. is very this is still alien a... you know this mm. Uh, again, it's Wolf using a dream sequence, but he's using this dream sequence very differently than he did the first one that we talked about uh, after Severian's Raising, which was more kind of to to put us off balance to to kind of flesh out the world and Severian's character, but also to confuse us. And here, this is uh, this is framed as more of a prophetic dream, right? Where Severian asks the Brides of Abaya, who am I? And they laugh and say, we'll show you. And they show him yeah. this battle between a, a a wooden man and a boy with a sword. And the boy and, with the sword is so dexterous and, and nimble and real. And I just loved it. Mm. Yeah. And, and the, the boy with the sword defeats the wooden man. 
But before he can get the killing blow, the wooden figure of the man floats away and the boy is left behind with the cudgel and the sword both broken. And then he says, I seemed to hear, no doubt it was really the squeaking of cartwheels on the street outside, a Mm -hmm. flourish of toy trumpets. And then he awakens because Dr. Talos has entered the room. Uh, There's also a very interesting exchange at the end here when Baldanders finally wakes up and he asks he slept here doctor Dr. Talos and I both nodded then I know whence my dreams rose and Severian asks him and he says of caverns below where stone teeth dripped blood of arms dismembered found on sanded paths and things that shook chains in the dark oh that's so good Things that shook chains in the dark inspired me to to write a short story horror myself right in that in that sentence. Nice. It made me, oh, that gave me such a stopping moment of reread, goosebumps, hair raising, warmth of inspiration. It was like ah, oh, things that shake chains in the dark. I don't know what it is about that particular passage, but it was it's phenomenal. Ooh, yeah. Uh, now, there's an interesting thing here. Uh, I, I think a a clue to what's going on in the sequence. So, Ooh, do tell. Baldanders asks, you know, wait, he slept here? And then he says, then I know where my dreams came from. Right, right, right. And what he describes is not exactly, but it could be perceived as a dream of the Oubliette, the Matachin Tower where Severian... So this could be the idea that Baldanders dreamed Severian's dream, and Severian dreamed Baldanders' dream. Holy crap. Because they were sleeping next to each other. Oh, that would be so freaking cool. Yeah. I hope that is the case. Yeah. And and again, I as I said the last time we talked about dreams, there will be further dream sequences and and further plot points as we move through the series to talk about past dream sequences and to compare them and see how Wolf is using them. I almost want uh, to, you know, institute this as a sec- as a dedicated section of the podcast going forward. Like we have a language section, we could have a dream sequence dream section. section. <laughs> but depend that this depends on how frequent they are, right? Because we you know, but we might not have them every single episode depending I, on how you're. I think we're only going to get one more in this book. Mm. It's been a while. Um, uh, there might be two. I can't remember if there's if if he actually dreams in one of the nighttime sequences or not. Anyway, uh, but yeah, yeah. So that that dream is very interesting, and of course, it's it's easy to look at this dream. As uh, seeing, you know, the boy with the sword as Severian because he's just been given a sword, you know, and and this is you could take this literally. You could say like, oh, he he has to fight a man in in a duel, and then of course, just a couple of chapters later, Severian is challenged to a duel to the death. Yeah, um, but we could also look at this metaphorically. Uh, we could look at this in in the sense of Severian. Uh, even though he considers himself a man, 
in this play, in the figure, ways. the figure that represents him is described as a boy. And uh, this could be a metaphorical thing where Severian is battling, you know, something about achieving manhood in his life. Uh, it could mean multiple different things. You know, there's there's so many different ways that this could go while also still being this sort of prophetic dream, answering Severian's question, who am I? Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. <laughs> it this is. is such a different type of book. Yeah, well, we so my, my big... Uh, my last big style point is to discuss how different the the kind of structure of this book has become where we we flew through years of Severian's life in the first dozen or so chapters and now we just spent five chapters on like the afternoon and next morning hmm. you know and and the pace in terms of how fast time passes is going to remain like this for the rest of the book. And this is why I kind of let off by saying this is the second act. Now the first act is establishing Severian's early life and what his upbringing was like. And now we, we hit that stage where he makes this, uh, this life changing choice to betray the guild and slip Thecla the knife and then turn himself in. And now we are going to see the real story of Severian play out as he deals with the consequences mm. that fall out of that one decision. Well, speaking on Severian himself, shall we uh, transition into our character discussion on Severian? Sure. Yeah. You want to talk about how horny he is? Yeah, my boy's full of lies and he's full of uh, hormones. Um, so... When Agia, who's lightning in a bottle, by the way, we're going to talk about her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a moment where they're doing their race and she gets pressed against him by the collision of another cart. And he thinks about how he's, like, he like he puts his arm around her to hold her, secure yeah. her, you know, uh -huh. being such a gentleman as he is. And he thinks about how he's held women, you know, like that before. And he specifically takes the time to write down Thecla among them. Yeah. Now. Correct me if I'm wrong, we never actually saw him do that. So this is something supposedly that happened off screen. However, he's also adamant, if I'm not mistaken, that he is still a virgin. Well, he's definitely not a virgin. He he lost his virginity. Oh, sorry, he went to, to the, 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 yeah, yeah, the house asher. Right, the, the house asher. I forgot the name uh, of it. So there are sorry, several... but that he and Thecla hadn't done anything of the sort. That's what I should have said. Uh, yeah, he, he gives us one scene in an earlier chapter where Thecla kind of comes onto him and takes his shirt mm -hmm. off and he like and he panics and runs away. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then here he explicitly says that the way he's holding Agia mm -hmm. is the way he has held Thecla. And on top of that, as well as other women he hired out off in the town. Right. And earlier, okay, in so it, he, oh my he God. tells us that after the House Azure, he was never really interested in going back out and hiring prostitutes. But now here he's saying that he did that often. <laughs> you see, I had just seen, oh, he mentions Thecla here. Oh, he's got his arm around Agia. Oh, I never saw him put his arm around Thecla like this. So he must. this must have happened off screen. Oh, this guy's lying. But he says he didn't ever do this with Thecla. Well, at that point, I thought he was saying he said he was a virgin. I, I knew something was up, but you just blew my mind 
yeah. with the additional connection of the fact that he had said that after Thecla, he was not going back to the house, house Azure. And yet still he's equating them in the same thought here. Uh, I think there's a, another quote from a, a couple chapters earlier that's worth mentioning. Uh, this is right when he sees Agia for the first time. I cannot explain the desire I felt for her then and afterward. Of the many women I have known, she was perhaps the least beautiful, less graceful than her I have loved most, less voluptuous than another, less Reginald by far than Thecla. She was of average height, blah, 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 blah. Now he gives us a list of women that he has loved. And the only one he names is Thecla. At the same time, it, I think it's interesting that he he says, less graceful than her I have loved most, but then names Thecla as somebody different. Different. Yeah. Mm. Or is yeah. there something... Oh, no, 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 that wouldn't make sense because she's dead already. Oh. Or presumably so, dead. Yeah, I, I would say... So we have in this list, there's one who, uh, whom he loved most, who is more graceful. Another unnamed woman who, uh, whom he describes as voluptuous, curvy. Uh, so keep in mind who those two women might be as you read through these. I think I already know. I might know one. Oh. Well, I'm assuming we might have met her already with Adja. Oh. As the voluptuous slash curvy one. Because he, he makes note about how she wouldn't necessarily be a beauty to look upon like well uh, no because he's comparing these other women against agia oh sorry oh my god yeah. okay yeah he's saying oh, that agia is less that. voluptuous oh, than this woman here. okay yeah i'm forgetting my okay which part we're at good mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah but but this is something like to keep an eye on as he has now moved on to like a new stage of his life outside of the supervision of the guild where he was not raised with a very healthy um, like attitude or, or healthy life experiences where the fairer sex is regarded. And now he's just like out in the world encountering women. Uh, there's, you know, <laughs> we, we see so pretty much immediately <laughs> he, he, he runs into a girl on the street and he's just like, wow, I want to have sex with you. Like, yeah, and we're not. We haven't even talked about the girl that that uh, Doctor Talos recruited there, and and that was like serving them breakfast or lack thereof in the morning. You know, she just like, yeah, oh, sure, I'll come along with you. I guess after I thought about it for fifteen seconds, you know. Uh, yes. At no point did Severian like really think about how he really, really loves, like he just really attracted to this particular girl too. But like, we're just. We're, we're, some of these characters like are coming and staying and making such a huge impression. Um, but these are ones that we just initially met. Whereas other ones earlier, I had assumed and maybe still assume that the girl who was joining Dr. Talos's and Baldander's and maybe mm -hmm. Severian's retinue, I thought she was going to become a, another central female character going forward. She might still, but then she just kind of comes and then goes off for these few chapters while we spend so much time meeting Agia, and then spending so much time with her. The dichotomy between those two has thrown me off in my expectation. Yeah. So, like, 
again, going to how weird the structure of this book gets, uh, not only the, the pace of time passing by, like how it slowed way down here and we're getting a much mm-hmm. more granular look at his life, but also the way Wolf sets up plot lines and then just jumps around like, Counter right, to your we, expectation. Or we have Severian yes. leaving the Citadel and, and it's all about, all right, I'm going to Thrax, you know, and then the first bit of directions he gets uh, from the lockage on like how to find a good inn to stay at, he forgets and gets lost. Well, maybe not forgets. He, he, he says that he gets lost <laughs> in the dark and that he's too tired to retrace his steps. I reread so, that one and I decided that one gets a pass on me. That yeah, one gets a yeah. pass. Yeah. But, but anyway, so immediately we have a divergence from what his path should have been to Thrax. And then we get Dr. Talos and Baldanders and they are immediately larger than life characters. Like you are not going to forget these two guys based on the descriptions. And we're going to, we're going to get into those descriptions a little later on, but, uh, but you know, it feels like this momentous thing. And then he has breakfast with them and immediately splits off. And he's like, yeah, I have no, uh, intention of meeting up with them at the no, he's, Stesiphon's cross or whatever it was called to, you know. Yeah, and he Has runs he missed- into Agia and Agilus, and again we get these like larger than life characters, like the Hipparch of the Septentrians, who comes in and without a word challenges him to to a duel, and and you know he falls like madly in lust with Agia immediately, and Agilus has this like death's head mask thing going on, and and then he immediately leaves Agilus behind. And and goes off with Agia, and and then we get the Pelerines, and there's this like super random like horse race in the middle of the city, and like yeah, but he it's all very jarring, you know. He hasn't truly left them behind in the narrative, unless you mean like where he's talking about them, because I mean I assume he still hasn't missed the deadline to meet up with Doctor Talos and uh, no. Baldanders, nor like yeah, he could still he could still have more to do with uh, well, so uh, Agia's uh, brother. The, his name again. the deadline for Doctor Talos and Baldanders, they're supposed to put that play on that evening. The yes. duel with the Septentrion is that evening. Oh, I had oh, how did I forget about the duel yeah. with Septentrion? Septentrion. Oh no. Yeah, with the hip arc. Yes, um, and then let's talk about the what this duel is. They're not mm-hmm. fighting with swords or guns or knives or anything. Some, They're fighting like with some kind of a plant. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like how That's weird is that? <laughs> I don't understand. This that. is, this really, this segment really is Wolf just like throwing you into the deep end of the world building and being yeah, like, and then apparently Agia <laughs> has to like explain, she's, she's with him to guide him through this cultural thing that he has no awareness of. Uh-huh. And so he's, in a way, very dependent on her right now, in a, in a major way, I should say. And it's just, and an Agia is, as I said earlier, lightning in a bottle. Like, she immediately strikes me as somebody who could be a lot of fun to read, but at the same time... Ooh, she is a great Her character. volatility could be very amusing and horrifying in equal measures, and so, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Agia. Yeah, she's... Um... She... Decides to race in the middle of the street like a seventeen-year-old Honda Civic driver. What is what is she talking about? Sorry for anybody who drives a Honda Civic, but I don't know. Yeah, she's crazy. Uh, she's she I think one of the most fascinating characters in this series. She cray. Yeah. Um. Mm. Yeah, and then and then the 
the crash into the altar and the meeting with the Pellerine, Pellerines and whatnot, and mm-hmm. this fire that somehow started. I don't understand how the yeah, fire started. And, still, was yeah. Well, they it was like an altar with candles and stuff on it, and a straw oh, floor. I thought they might have so, had like yeah uh, candles inside the the, the whatever horse draw or the fiacre was. Yeah, Fiacre, which was one I almost yeah. wrote down, but I was like, you know what? I'm gonna pretend I understood this one, and I didn't write it down. So. Uh, you, you don't, you don't need to. Like I again, you can of, figure that one out pretty easily by just the context. Gene Wolf it's a horse drawn character. If you can just <laughs> pretend that you know certain words, <laughs> Rob, 2022. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you put that yeah. one on a on a book jacket. There you go. <laughs> but it's it's also easier to get through once you kind of accept that you don't really need to know, right? That's like, true. Because the words that he's using are not describing exactly what the definition is to us, or may not be exactly what it is. He gives you that out. Gene Wolfe gives you that graceful exit from needing to accept a strict word to word. You just figure out more or less what it means by the context, and you move on. And then you're like, so that, that whole description of all the crazy kinds of clothing in the rag shop you don't need to stop and look up what all these different things are. You can just like get do. it in your mind. Oh, these are a bunch of different types of clothing. Or the you know? Oriflame, which specifically made mention to the King of France in the Middle Ages, which might not really matter. Right here, it's more like, context. no, this is just like a golden banner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, of some okay. kind. I like it. Okay, I'm getting, okay. I'm marinating in this book now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like once you get your bearings in the world and in Wolf's style and in Severian's style, the reading experience gets a lot smoother. Like, mm. I, I think I mentioned this right off the top uh, in our first episode, but like it took me multiple tries to get into The Shadow of the Torturer. The first time I read it, I got maybe a chapter or two in and I put it down because it just wasn't clicking for me. And then after sitting on it for a couple of months, you know, looking at that book just sitting on my nightstand, and remembering the weirdness and the wonder that I felt struggling through those opening pages to figure out what was going on, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this another shot. And then I went into it knowing more what to expect, and I just blazed through all four of them in about three weeks. <laughs> so... Oh, man, reading all of this in three weeks would just... Oh, be, I, I think that would still be too much for me. I read Sword of the Lictor and Citadel of the Autark in like four days. Like I could not put those books down by the, that by the time that I got to, moment. yeah. By the time I got to book three, it was game over. <laughs> like nice. And then I couldn't Very read nice. anything else for about a month and a half afterward. Cause everything else felt like dross bland. Dross. Garbage. Like mm. it, yeah, it took the double surprise release of bands of morning and Mistborn secret history to snap me out of it because yeah, it was like everything that I tried to read. I was like, this is terrible. This, this author sucks compared to Wolf. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he spoiled but, you, dude. Yeah. It's, but like you said, you know, some of these descriptions, you read it and you just stop and you go, wow, I want to write something now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's I, intimidating, but inspiring. Uh, intimidating, but inspiring. As I said, last episode. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. intimidating, inspiring in equal amounts. Yeah, I want to talk about the fact that Severian decided to let. Uh, oh my God, I'm drawing a, a blank. Agia, he let her hold uh-huh. the sword. 
he let her hold Terminus Est. I thought that was like a sacred thing. Like how badly does Severian need to get laid when he absolutely <laughs> he very horny. permit someone else to just observe it because he had already denied somebody observing this sword or even touching this sword previously. And then Aja's like, he's like, yeah, here you go. Check this out. Why don't you draw it? Why don't you like practice with it a little bit? He's just like, here, here, whatever she wants. I get the proposed reasoning behind it vis-a-vis his hormones, but that felt like a big red flag for Zavarian as a character for me and how volatile he is and how at the mercy of his hormones or his ego that he is. Right. Moment of uh, <sighs> concern. Crimson flag. And then, like, immediately afterward, Agilus tries really hard to buy the sword from him. Oh, his, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he keeps upping the ante despite the fact that you think he's done. He's like, okay, six, but you can't tell anybody that I'm doing this for you, okay? Again and again and again and again. What is yeah. so special about this sword? It's got an opal in the uh, at the very base. Well, it's it's an ex- a sort of extremely fine make. I mean, it's got friggin' yeah. mercury down the spine of the sword. Like, <laughs> yeah, but he's like, I still don't think that that is quite deserving of this. Kind I mean, of think about haggling. this. Like, these two are are running a like a costume shop together, mm-hmm. a rag shop. Clearly, mm-hmm. like, Agia tells him outright that they're not, like, they're poor. Mm-hmm. She's trying to get Severian to buy her, like, all this stuff when they're going out. She's like, oh, don't mm-hmm. worry about spending your money. You're going to die tonight anyway, so you may as well buy me stuff. Like, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so the the way I interpreted that scene with Terminus Est is that this sword is worth a hell of a lot more than, like, five or six Crisos. But Agilus is trying to buy it off Severian cheap and then turn around and sell it for what it's really worth, you know? For an insane markup. Yeah. And and Severian, despite being naive and and stupid and horny, is at least smart enough to be like, no, I need this. You cannot buy this from me. It's not Not for sale. Not having any idea who these two siblings are, at this point, I'm thinking they know something about this sword that I don't. So this, this may just be a disparity between... Um, having more context for these characters versus just having been introduced to these characters and being super sus. But mm-hmm. my first reaction, my knee-jerk reaction to this is, he knows something about this sword that I don't. Or that Severian doesn't. Because I don't. Or it Well, it's or, what he knows about it is that it's worth a hell of a lot more than Severian. Right, thinks. okay. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, he recognizes this. Or this, yeah. No, mm. no, no, no. Yeah, okay. it's... This isn't some, like, mythical, you know... <laughs> Yeah, uh, or it's got Calendor some symbol of some like sort that. of magical yeah. order that his grandparents once told him about, or like that, that, that's what I mean, like yeah. something small that could be a world building thing. That you're like, what about this sword is it that has engaged his interest so much? But you're right, because of their, uh, yeah, he wants poverty. to get the sword to to make a killing, sell on an incredible and, okay. and All right, All right. that's so much simpler than I thought. I'm a little disappointed because I really wanted to be super sus of the mm. brother, but okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, shall we talk about miscellaneous points and, and our uh, our passage of the week? 
yes, our favorite. Yes, um, for my passage of the week, I'll have to get my e-reader, which is downstairs, but I don't oh, need I'm that yet. So ready. I still have a couple of miscellaneous that we can get to before then. <laughs> the uh, the brief aside about Yamar, uh-huh. and the, uh, the the several different uh, choices he had of following certain entertaining parties, and he decided to follow the dog laughing. That was just a lot of fun. I liked that. Yeah. Oh, man. I noticed um, the reference to the Archangel Gabriel. Gabriel. Yes. I don't know how you would pronounce Gabriel. it. Gabriel. Yeah, I have actually in my own chief these big series uh, a character who is very loosely structured around uh, the biblical uh, Gabriel himself as well. So like, I was like, ah, oh, Gabriel. Here we have a word and a name that I actually understand a, a whole <laughs> etymology that I actually understand, and it felt like a winning moment for me. But it wasn't a new word for me, so I didn't include in my names, of course, or my new words. This is just one that made me go, ha. I was like, Captain America, I got that reference. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I actually think it's interesting because the... I, I don't know if this is a, a, a specific, you know instance of that kind of like twisting myth and legend into like slightly recognizable, but with differences. This felt very direct and straightforward. This didn't feel like, uh, I don't know. Not deceptive, well, well, but so hidden. The thing that got me is that Gabriel in this is described as like having his sword and his ax. And well, there's reference to his horn as well. Yeah. So that to me, like as a, uh, in, in like Catholic iconography of Gabriel, mm-hmm. he does not have a weapon. He carries the sword. He's like the herald, right? He's the one the who delivers of... messages for God. He's yeah. usually either or portrayed with, with the, the horn or with like a text in his hand. Uh, generally speaking, the archangel who's portrayed in a martial fashion is Michael. Who's the one who yes. battles Satan. Uh, yeah, Gabriel's but even message. then, it's always with a sword. I don't think I've ever seen Catholic iconography of an archangel with an axe. And that's why I thought it was uh, kind of fascinating that he gave Gabriel both a sword and an axe. Mm. It was a um, it was a, a double-headed axe as well, yeah. I think. One on either side, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking up here. Yeah, Gabriel, one of the archangels, was the heavenly messenger sent to Daniel to explain the vision of the ram. But yeah. Yep. Yeah. Let's see, miscellaneous points? More? I'm sure I have some. Yeah, go for it. Uh, Master Palaemon had a really epic line that I really liked. When a gift is deserved, it is not a gift, but payment. This is a... This is a sentiment that I've been trying to get across to so many like co-workers where I'm just like, yeah, you can have this Gatorade. It's really hot. You can have this. Oh, yeah, I'll pay for this pizza for you. You should do that. No worries. And they're just like, oh, come on, but I, I haven't got it. Listen, if, if you had earned it, it's, <laughs> it's me paying you, okay? That's what a gift means. So to hear it so succinctly put by Master Palaman, you know, Gene Wolf, thank you so much for articulating that in a way that I couldn't quite formulate. When a gift is deserved, it is not a gift, but payment. Sage yeah. wisdom. It was so nice. Oh, yeah. It's really good. It's one of those things that I love about Wolf. Uh, he has this way of 
giving you lines like that where, where you're just reading along and then he just hits you with some like deep wisdom. You're like, whoa, huh, I never thought about that quite that way before, you know? Uh, so uh, one line, not quite the same thing, but I think this may uh, ring a bell in, in relation to a past series we've covered on the podcast. Uh, oh. The very end of chapter 17. Uh, have I said that time turns our lies into truths? <laughs> yeah. Yep, 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 yep. It's good stuff. Good That's stuff. Such a, like, the foreshadowing is like a mountain, just like whoosh, swarms there. Oh, I'm yeah. ready for our, our favorite passages, if you are. I am so ready. Okay, I have to go get my e-reader. So, I actually have two here as well that I kind of want to read. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, okay, well, yeah, I mean, you can go ahead and read both. Oh, you know what? You know what? Actually, I had already um, made reference to my past one. The one was Yamir, oh, sorry, Yamar Rose and Follow the Dog laughing. I was originally going to make that in my passage, but no. Instead, I have this one. And I made reference to how this sentence pissed me off earlier in this episode. Um, it's probably not going to surprise anybody here, um, but let's just get through this. As is the fashion in some parts of the city, most of these buildings had shops in their lower levels, though they had not been built for the shops, but as guild halls, basilicas, arenas, conservatories, treasuries, oratories, martellos, asylums, manufactories, conventicles, hospices, lazarets, mills, refectories, dead houses, abattoirs, and playhouses. Bro, yeah. <laughs> that paragraph, because of my reading habits, that paragraph took me half an hour to get through. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 19. I got on a very quick run. <laughs> 19 different nouns in the latter part of that sentence. That's good stuff. So, Yes. Paints quite a picture of the city. It does. It very, very much does. How about yours? Okay. So I'm going to bring it back uh, about a year here. Uh, you will recall when we did City of Stairs, there was a particular character's description that you loved. Ah, oh, I know who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the time, I... I mentioned how, like, yes, there have been things like that that have stood out to me. This character description that I'm about to read is my favorite description of a character ever. Oh, my God. Dr. Talos leaned toward her as he said this, and it struck me that his face was not only that of a fox, a comparison that was perhaps too easy to make because his bristling reddish eyebrows and sharp nose suggested it at once, but that of a stuffed fox. I have heard those who dig for their livelihood say there is no land anywhere in which they can trench without turning up the shards of the past. No matter where the spade turns the soil, it uncovers broken pavements and corroding metal, and scholars write that the kind of sand that artists call polychrome, because flecks of every color are mixed with its whiteness, is actually not sand at all, but the glass of the past, now pounded to powder by eons of tumbling in the clamorous sea. If there are layers of reality beneath the reality we see, even as there are layers of history beneath the ground we walk upon, 
Then, in one of those more profound realities, Dr. Talos's face was a fox's mask on a wall, and I marveled to see it turn and bend now toward the woman, achieving by those motions which made expression and thought appear to play across it with the shadows of the nose and brows, an amazing and realistic appearance of vivacity. <laughs> an amazing and realistic appearance that, of vivacity. That right there is something only a true master of the English language could write. Could even begin to comprehend attempting to write. <laughs> and and I want to I want to break it down because he do it up. Uh, immediately after that, would you refuse it? He asked again, and I shook myself as though waking. And I think that that's important there because Severian it, he's like jarred out of this reverie, and Wolf wants to jar us out of this immersion of language that he just put us through. Assuming and get you back into the scene. Appreciate it. Right. Yes. But I want to break down what this description actually means because I think there is a dreamlike quality to it. And a lot of people will read this and just be like, what the hell did I just read? I have no <laughs> clue what this is saying. All right. Right. Keep reading. I uh, keep going. I can hear you in my headphones. I have to go get my charger. Be right back. Keep going. Yeah. So it starts off with Dr. Talos being described as having the face of a fox. And that immediately tells us something, you know, foxes are crafty, they're sneaky, they're roguish. Uh, and, it, and of course, it gives us the reddish eyebrows and sharp nose. But then he goes on to say a stuffed fox. And then he goes on this long kind of rumination on the nature of the world and how there are layers of the world because there's you know, civilization has been around for so long and it's been built upon and, and upon and upon and upon. And then he gets to... If there are layers of reality beneath the reality we see, and then he says in one of those more profound realities, Dr. Talos's face was a fox's mask on a wall, and I marveled to see it turn and bend now toward the woman, achieving by those motions, which made expression and thought appear to play across it with the shadows of the nose and brows, an amazing and realistic appearance of vivacity. So he's saying that the appearance of Dr. Talos in in the world we're experiencing is that of another human being one who's crafty who's who's got these striking fox-like features but that severian is perceiving a hidden layer of dr talos in which he is artificial he's saying specifically that the way dr talos turned and lowered his face didn't he, he didn't actually have expression playing on his face, but he uses the angles of the shadows to make it look like there's expression playing on his face. And that there is <laughs> oh, a man. realistic appearance of vivacity, not that there is vivacity, not that there is life in this man, but oh, that there is the appearance of life. Now... Let's go back to the very first description. The very first descriptor we get of Dr. Talos is that he has a mouthful of gold teeth. Yes. And now I'm going to bring it back even further. Every human character in this series is named after a saint. Dr. Talos is named after a golden automaton from Greek mythology. This man is a robot. Oh. 
He doesn't sleep. Oh my god, He orders dude. food, but doesn't eat it. He has the waitress eat his food. Oh my god. They are super far in the future. Yup. They have hitherto unknown types of technology that have gone forgotten. Dr. Talos is a robot. And he hides that fact in this long, complicated, almost rambling description using big words and strange concepts. This is one of those clues, one of the ways that he hides information in plain sight. He overwhelms you with language so that you have to stop and really think about what you're reading and you miss the forest for the trees. You miss what he's actually telling you because you're so busy figuring out what he's telling you. (laughs) So it's Gene Wolfe playing with the perspective of the reader. Yeah. The the, the moment-to-moment, the sentence-by-sentence perspective of the reader. Yeah. This this is Bardod, my favorite character description I've ever read. You just made such a good case for it. I think it became mine. When you told me that he is a robot, I had about four straight <laughs> seconds of not knowing who I was. <laughs> uh, that was the loudest silence I've ever been a part of. <laughs> and that is what the Book of the New Sun does to you. There are so oh many moments God. like this. Yeah, so back to your regularly scheduled Inking Out Loud programming uh, with the final draft. Sweet. So... For the first time in a while, I actually have what I feel like is an appropriately, thematically appropriate, I should say, beer. Um, This one is from Muskoka Brewery. I have not tried it yet. In fact, the sound that you're about to hear is the sound of me opening it to try it. I'm going to have a taste real quick right here. Hold on. Oh, that is definitely a pale ale. Whoa. Yes, this is a hazy pale ale. (laughs) You can tell that I bought it just for the name, of course. This one here is, uh, let's see here, with a fistful of Chinook, Simcoe, and Citra hops. Okay. I definitely got those Citra hops there. Scorching Sun, Chilled Nights, Thorny Cacti. What the f- Okay, they're just going on and on. They're, they're being pretentious here. Um, hmm. This is an, uh, a hazy pale ale that is actually really nice. The 5.6% ABV, it's in a nice purple can. This one is dedicated to... Severian's travels at the moment and his lack of having a home and the fact that he had just spent the past night sharing a bed with um, one and what he thought was going to be two other people. This one is called Drifter. Mm, nice. Very appropriate. Although there's a giant dude with a cowboy hat and a mustache on the front and a Less appropriate. that's leaking <laughs> on the side. I don't think that has any thematic connection with what we're doing although drifter yes how about yeah. yourself my good friend yeah well i'm i'm just drinking a refreshingly light premium indian tonic water from fever tree but of course i have a beer to talk about and this beer i actually can talk about some of the tasting notes because not only have i had this beer before um i actually i have a vague memory that i think i brought a version of this on the podcast i don't know what it would have been for but i have a vague memory of it uh, so this is a 14.3% bourbon barrel-aged barley wine. 
Wow. Uh, it is it is very good. Uh, surprisingly, it's something you can find, uh, at least in Colorado, and I'm pretty sure a lot of places, because this brewery is from Portland, Oregon, you know, they're, they distribute a lot. Uh, you can find it on shelves in your local bottle shop, you know, liquor store. Uh, it's got huge, like, toffee, sweet notes, uh, like, just... I'm down with the toffee. I remember yeah. really liking this beer. Very strong, of course, at 14.3%. But this this one is, uh, this one goes out to our new friend, Baldanders. It Ball is Danders. from Gigantic Brewing Company. <laughs> and the beer is okay. called Massive. <laughs> I like it. I very much yeah. like it. I, I got the immediate yeah. impression, of course, having come so fresh out of um, uh, Polanski's trilogy, his Lowtown trilogy, Bald Anders immediately brought to mind a character in that series who is... Uh, oh, no, I'm not going to go into it, back. Oh, interesting. But then I realized hmm. just how big Bald Anders is and how he's actually oh. giant, not just yeah, large on the human perspective, but he's large by any perspective. And so he started to take on his own kind of uh, character there, but he also struck yeah. me as remarkably fragile, and so I'm really I don't know what it is about Bald Anders, but I'm kind of endeared already, and I'm really hoping we see more of him in Doctor Talos. Uh, we forward. will. I will make that promise. Good. Good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I think that is a wrap for this episode. Uh, this has been. Let me double check here in the spreadsheet. Episode one seventy six of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Nice. Um, yeah. Next up, we're going to be heading right on through. We're going to be reading chapters 19 through 22 of the shadow of the torturer. So check out that in a week or so, or if you want to support us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash inking out loud, you'll be able to get access to that episode early. Uh, probably the day this episode comes out, uh, that Patreon support goes a long way toward, you know, helping us pay for our website hosting and, and software. And of course, paying for the awesome, awesome thumbnail art the for our individual the episodes. The unrivaled ability of having Danny do this for us. Yeah, yes. we are super spoiled and we appreciate that support greatly. It's I have been your host, degrees. Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. And somewhere in the background, my cat, Severian, named after, of course, Severian, the torturer. <laughs> yeah, I just realized how confusing that could have been. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. He actually went meow.